the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's a piece yours truly hosted that I trust you will enjoy. Good morning to a brand new United Kingdom. And I could not have a better guest than Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Not only is he a friend of Margaret Thatcher's, uh, was a friend of Margaret Thatcher's, not only is he a student and official biographer of Winston Churchill, he is married to the estimable Mrs. Arn, who is an Englishwoman through and through, though she is now an American citizen, whose father was on Dunkirk and fought throughout the war, and who has uh, rigorously trained up his son-in-law in all things British. And it is a great day to be an Anglophile, Larry Arn, is it not? Oh, yeah, it was fine, wasn't it? Oh, my goodness. I, uh, I read from the Telegraph. Uh, Boris Johnson was cheered into Downing Street by his staff this afternoon after visiting the Queen at Buckingham Palace to confirm his re-election. The Conservatives won a shock landslide of majority of 76, giving Mr. Johnson a, quote, stonking mandate, close quote, to deliver Brexit. What were your reactions as this unfolded last night, Larry Arndt? Well, uh, I had a mischievous reaction first. Johnson and Corbyn were as if created specifically by God for the roles they played last night. <laughs> That's a great reaction. <laughs> you know, I just thought, who, who could better stand there in humiliation and, and look the part than Jeremy Corbyn? <laughs> he just, he's a poor old sourpuss. And, uh, and uh, Johnson was ebullient, of course, and emphatic, of course. He just has... He has two modes, more ebullient, emphatic, <laughs> slightly less ebullient, emphatic. And uh, he was, you know, he, he's got a very, uh, he, he's a very smart man, and he's, and like a lot of highly intelligent people, he cuts right through it. And so his campaign was direct and clear all the way through. Now, I have been asking and getting various levels of pushback, a variety of pundits this morning, if there is not a parallel to be drawn between the refusal of the Remain voter and elites in London and the liberal labor, the liberal Democrats and the labor extremists to accept the will of the people and the result that followed with the refusal of the never Trumpers and the resistance and the media, the Manhattan Beltway media elite to accept Donald Trump. Do you think there is a parallel in the reaction that was disclosed in the United Kingdom yesterday and which might yet appear here in November of next year? Uh, several clear ones. Um, uh, this was a, 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 what, what, the reason Boris won so much. We've got to, we've got to talk about devolution in, in uh, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland in a minute. But in England, what happened was, Boris Johnson held the typical conservative vote in southern England. You know, in southwest, southeast England is where London is and where most of the population is. 
And so labor is very strong right in the middle of London still. And the suburbs, uh, we, we, and, you know, they go very far because it's very populous over there. That, that's Tory country. And the, the Tories held that. But there's a seat up in, up in the northeast in coal country, former coal country, the coal industry is not so big anymore, called Blythe. And the first seat announced last night was Bly Valley. And that, that hadn't been won by a Tory since 1950. Isn't that remarkable? And and uh, and they and, and uh, that uh, that you see that was the react that that election was the reaction election to the 1945 labor sweep, and then they didn't hold it in '51 when Churchill was in fact elected, re-elected prime minister. So that's a that's a microcosm, right? That's that's Western Pennsylvania and Ohio and Michigan. Right, the outskirts of those places, the the out of town places there, and the Tories just dominated those places, and they reversed fifteen or twenty seats that have you know not been uh, Tory in memory. And so you know, I, I was on a, a bus trip last year to Hadrian's Wall, which, for the benefit of the Steelers fans, is something the Romans left behind in four hundred. AD. And I wanted to see it. And, and the, the leader of the tour was a retired fireman from the way north, up near Hadrian's Wall. And he, I brought up Prime Minister Thatcher, and he said, oh, don't be bringing her up around me. She closed the pits. And, uh, and then I got a lecture on the evil Margaret Thatcher. We're talking about seats up there that went for the conservatives. That's right. That's right. And that's, uh, you see, that it's, that's a, the, the What's amazing to me, and see, it's just the morning after, so one has to think and absorb and learn more, but the old, you know, if you read Shakespeare's history plays, uh, the England that's described in those is present in this election in some obvious ways. Oh, interesting. Uh, You know, because, uh, so first of all, labor has basically been eliminated from Scotland, which is their historic base. the Tories have basically always carried England, and Labour had huge advantages in in Scotland, and large, not quite as huge advantages in Wales. And those, you know, it's the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and that United Kingdom, that's the name of the place, right, because it was this achievement through war going over, and, and diplomacy going over centuries to get all of the home islands... And the northern part of Ireland, only that, uh, into a union. And now there are no labor seats up there. It's all Scottish nationals, and they want to leave. And so uh, the Tory advantage in England was dispositive and grew. And, uh, and it didn't help, and Scotland didn't help labor, in fact, it hurt them. And that was, that's true in the, in the 2015 election that Cameron won. Uh, and and was true in the 2017 election that uh, Theresa May kind of won. So th- that that's opening up, and see, one part of the politics of all of that, especially as regards Scotland, was there was always European interference in Scotland. The great empires over there, France or Spain, would have you know soldiers in Scotland. Goes back centuries. Mary Queen of Scots was sent over by the French. Exactly right. And see, and so now the European Union is an alternative to them, right? They're not Scotland is not very populous, you know, and it's 
it's a rocky old place, and there, you know, it's hills and it's chilly up there. It's chilly everywhere in England, but worse in Scotland, more in Scotland. And so it's it. Uh, they're never going to be the great economy that 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 England is. And see, England's got those huge ports along the coast, and it's the part of Eng- of, of Great Britain that's closest to Europe. And so it's got enormous, and it's, a lot of it's flat. And so it's got enormous advantages, you know, and it's big, too, in the territory compared to those other places, and, so, and big in population. So Scotland, one of the reasons that, that the Union has held together is those outlying places, they hate to be described that way, need the great economy and strength of England well, maybe they can think they can ally with Europe, which is exactly the thought they had back in the day. And uh, so I, I think all that's extremely interesting. And, uh, you know, Boris Johnson uh, has a huge advantage over most politicians. He's an educated man. And so he knows that story. And he's uh, what they call a staunch unionist. And he's uh, made up a name. He says that we're the big four. And we're awesome, the awesome foursome. And that's England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. I, I, I need to get from you, since you knew Lady Thatcher, Baroness Thatcher. How do they compare? I, I don't want to be too quick to start crowning him with the glory of Thatcher, because he's got some work to do here. He's got to win three more elections, and he's got to deliver popularity and, and growth and national defense and be strong when the Falklands on his watch, which will come, arises. How do they compare in temperament? <laughs> well, they're, you know, they're, they have one thing in common and many things different. Uh, she, she was, uh, you know, what they have in common is they both turn and they're like the puppy dogs that I always choose. If you slap your hands really loudly in, in a, around a litter of puppies, some of them turn toward the noise. <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> they're both like that. She was really like that. Uh, let me let me go to the heart. Before we talk about why Boris won, I want to talk about why Labor lost. And I have a producer here. You may not have met him. His name is Dwayne. He doesn't show up very much. And, and <laughs> Dwayne went, he came in to celebrate um, about five minutes before the show, and he, he pulled out of his hat just randomly a quote of Alan Johnson. And if you're watching the universe, you can watch this. He's the former Labor Home Secretary. Right. He's a Blairite. And he has on stage with him the founder of the momentum nightmare that is the party within the party. And here is what Alan Johnson, an old laborer, the way that we talk about old Democrats like JFK and Sam Nunn, old labor talking to Corbynite. Cut number 20. I don't live in London. I live in Yorkshire. I live in a working class community. And I've known John for many years. John's been around, you know, from the Benite days. And I'm afraid the working classes have always been a big disappointment for John and his cult. Corbyn was a disaster on the doorstep. Everyone knew that he couldn't lead the working class out of a paper bag. Now John's developed this momentum group, this party within a party, aiming to keep the purity. The culture of betrayal goes on. You'll hear it now more and more over the next couple of days as these, this little cult get their act together. I want them out of the party. I want momentum gone. Go back to your student politics and your little, you know, left-wing... But that isn't realistically going to happen, is oh, it? Well, well, I'm just I mean, saying, I don't know. I'm saying I what yeah. I want. Yeah. Saying what I want after, if that ex- exit poll is wrong, the most disastrous result for the Labour Party, the worst result since 1935. 
People like uh, John and his pals will never admit this, but they are they have messed up completely. And it's our communities that are going to pay for that. I feel really angry about this, that we persevered with Corbyn for this kind of experiment of back to the future. Let me ask it, Larry. He's saying you've poisoned my party. You've killed it dead. Do you hear the anger in in Sir Alan Johnson's uh, voice? Yes, Sir Alan. And I'm from Yorkshire. You hear that part? He talks talks Yorkshire, too. I can't do it, but my wife can do it really well. It's close to Lancashire, which she can also talk. And they're side by side. And, of course, they were the big opponents in the War of the Roses. But he did, so he's a Yorkshireman, right? And that's up in the north, and it's uh, and that's a different kind of thing than being in London. And so that's right. That's a there's a I'm struggling for a word because I understand politics to be a very comprehensive thing that comprehends and include that involves the social. But let's call this a social thing, right? There are people who live their lives in very different ways in Britain, and those. Uh, those people in the in the provinces, especially anywhere there was coal mining, were heart of the Labour Party, and that's gone for them now in this election. And and so he's bitter. Can they rebuild that? We a we do need a two party system there and here. But I am struck by the parallels of the resistance and the never Trumpers banding together to poison the Democratic Party and resulting in an impeachment fiasco like we saw yesterday, and the Corbinites banding together with the Remain Tories yeah. to kill politics for a time. Study up, study up uh, Jimmy Hoffa. There's a good movie out about it now called The Irishman. And, uh, and if you just watch his career, read about him or watch a good film about him, he, what, he was talking to a bunch of truckers, and he was saying... We need more stuff. This is not fair, right? Talking providentially with Dr. Larry on president of Hillsdale College, as I'm putting over at HughHewitt.com, there are very few Americans walking around who have been on good terms with Baroness Thatcher, escorted her while in the States, who have written about Winston Churchill, served as an assistant to Churchill's official biographer, Sir Martin Gilbert, and married to an Englishwoman turned American and that is a category of one, I believe, and it's Larry Arn. Am I right about all those things, Dr. Larry Arn? Uh, well, she did come to Hillsdale College campus, but not while I was here. She spoke for the college three times while I was here in other places. Well, and then I, you I did escort her around. I used, to go, I used to go see her in London. Yes. And, uh, you know, she was, especially after she finished, she was uh, delightful. Penny and I had lunch with her, I don't know how many times, but quite a few. And, uh, you know, we did that. We did that statue of her here, and she approved it, and uh, there's that funny thing. She's a very good correspondent, and so I wrote her a letter. She approved the statue right away, and I wrote her a letter and sent her pictures of it, and I didn't hear her. And my wife said, I bet the skirt's too short. And uh, <laughs> so, so I got the sculptor to do a new one with a longer skirt. I sent it. I, I called a, a lady named Ann Worthen, who worked for her forever, and I said, Ann, I said, uh, I haven't heard from the lady Thatcher. Oh, she's very busy. And I said, I understand. I said, is the skirt too short? And uh, Ann didn't confirm or deny. She said, she's a very proper lady, you know, which would be a difference between her and Tony Blair in two respects. Uh, and uh, not Tony Blair, Boris Johnson. So, you know, then I sent the new one, and right away they approved it. 
And I talked to her about it later, and I said, well, you know, that was rather a mistake, ma'am. And she said, why? And I said, well, you do have very nice legs. And she said, I've been told that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I want you to, I want you to go out on a limb here. Um, having served so many years aside Sir Martin Gilbert and knowing Churchill as well as you do, and having written Churchill's trial, and having known Baroness Thatcher as well as you do, imagine for us, if you will, what both of them would think about last night's result. What would they see it as as an extension of or departure from their legacies, their intention for the English-speaking peoples? Well, uh, so, so it's not very, it's not at all difficult to, you know, first of all, one can just imagine her talking. Uh, highlight the difference between her and Boris. Boris is a little bit clownish sometimes, right? He's got a really great sense of humor, and he shows off. Andrew Sullivan wrote about that this week, by the way, and it's part of his appeal. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, her appeal, Margaret Thatcher's, on first glance, was severe. She, uh, you know, when they lampooned her, they lampooned her as shrewish, uh, except for the, the greatest of all lampoons. There was a series of phone calls on on the equivalent of Saturday Night Live on Britain, where she was cooking in the kitchen for dinner, and she would take a phone call <laughs> while she's working over her pots. Anyway, that was all hilarious because it's so different from how she seemed in public. Now, what she was, in fact, was uh, she was a proper lady. She had a really great sense of humor. But the big thing about her, more than Boris, I do believe, is if she was challenged in any way, she would just immediately turn and face it directly and speak real straight about it. So one can find on YouTube her last um, uh, performance as prime minister after the Tories had voted her out. She never lost an election. And, uh, and you know, that was a shame that they did that after 12 years. And that's, you know, Michael Heseltine and a bunch of those guys on the left who have their successors in the Tory party today, except Boris through a lot of many. Yeah, not many. uh, Anyway, yeah, she was, she, she, and she was, you know, very skeptical about the European Union. Uh, They were in it. She would not go any further. And, uh, and she was, this is Britain. We are a democracy ourselves. We have our own system of rule. It is the best. That's how she talked. And uh, so this would be a big day for her. And, uh, you know, this rivals her biggest victories, and she won some huge ones. 1987, I saw that on many lips last night. Maybe not quite the shock of her first win, but the size of her second. And what would she think of where the Tory party is going? Because Boris is all about making the NHS work. Uh, He's all about adding 50,000 police or 20,000 police and 50,000 nurses. And he's all about keeping Northern Ireland. And we need to talk about the United Kingdom because we Wales is taken for granted, and that's wrong. Scotland wants to secede often and won't. But the Northern Irish are in a difficult position. And those are my people. Yeah, yeah. Well, they uh, – so that's part of your character is explained by that. Yeah. They, uh, they, uh, stubborn. <laughs> stubborn, yeah, you know, insular, you know, well, that's, you know, overwhelmed by a big neighbor and always, <laughs> always striking out. Um, so what the situation, so uh, for the first time since the Irish troubles ended, no, since long before that, actually, uh, Irish nationalists won more seats than the DUK, what is it, uh, Democratic Unionist uh, 
part party in Northern Ireland that has been the prop of the minority conservative government these three years. And so uh, they, they are outnumbered now. And this, the, the, the deal, there's already been a deal struck about the initial departure from Britain. Boris Johnson went over there and got one. And the troubling thing was the backstop because Northern Ireland is torn. It wants to be united with Southern Ireland now that the troubles are over, now that it's not war on the border all the time and in the streets of Belfast, which is Northern Ireland's biggest city. Um, so they want to be part of Ireland and they want to be part of Britain. But Britain is not to be part of the EU, and Ireland is. And so what do you do about that? Do you have border crossings and tariffs? And the agreement that Boris has struck is that goods departing from or entering from the EU, when they go through Northern Ireland, and the EU includes Ireland, there will be a border, and passengers and goods will go through customs. And that means that there's effect, There's some border, significant amount of – because if, 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 if something's destined just for Northern Ireland, it will just go freely back and forth, and nobody has to look at it, right, except to find out where it's destined. But, you know, and if you're in Northern Ireland, if you've got a Northern Ireland airport uh, passport, you can just walk through as if you had a, a British passport. But there will be some border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. And that will go on for four years when the Northern Ireland Parliament can vote whether they want to continue it or not. What that means is that there's a kind of a devolution implicit in those arrangements, and uh, who knows how it'll go. Uh, uh, what uh, We were talking during the break about an old friend of mine, Peter Utley, who was the deputy editor of The Telegraph for 400 years, and, uh, you know, the... <laughs> And you know, one of the he was a really great man too. He's, he was blind, and uh, and he helped to nurture the career of John O'Sullivan, where I first met John O'Sullivan. Anyway, he explained to me Northern Ireland one time. I said to him because that was you know when I was living over there and and going back and forth after living there, I would always see him, and he he had a big thing about that. And you know, he's English, right? He wasn't uh, Irish, and he he. Uh, he said, well, it's, a, it's the kind of moral commitment that you have to keep, he said, because Britain has had trouble with Ireland for centuries, and we've often been wrong, and they, the Protestants in the North, stand to get hurt by that. And so we should protect them. We promise to. We have to keep doing it. Through all those troubles and wars, they went on for 30 years. And, uh, you know, Britain blamed by the world and... British soldiers was awful. killed and killed. Yeah, it was bloody. It was awful, right? And so that's uh, the, the thing. The two things that have changed are the border is calm, right? There really isn't a border. Uh, it's not gone, I can tell you, because uh, we had a cab driver take us back to the boat. We were on a cruise and stopped there last year and uh, in Belfast, and he, he went on about how his father was killed in the Troubles, and killed by Northern Ireland forces, right, the uh, Irish, Republic, uh, Irish Republican Army, they were called. And, uh, you know, I don't know that's true, but I watched him while he talked, and uh, we stood and talked outside the cab after I paid him for like 10 minutes, 
and he was telling a sad and heartfelt story, so he believed it. And that means that the echoes are, are very much still around. And, and, you know, the resentments run in a hundred different directions. It's kind of like living in the Balkans. And, uh, and so what's going to happen there? Well, we'll see, right? It, uh, you called. I, read, I looked at your Washington Post article, which is very good, and, uh, and, uh, about Boris Johnson, and we need yep. him in the West, and we do. Just straight talking is so important. And, uh, and he, yeah, what's going to happen if, if, he, if Britain turns itself into what it was forever, which is uh, after it stopped being a mercantilist country, and it sort of stopped doing that after it became the dominant merchant power in the world. And yeah, when it became an empire. <laughs> then, yeah. then it, you know, it was the great force for free trade and for free passage on the seas, and the British Navy enforced that, and Britain, Britain became the financial and economic center of the world because of that. They should go that way. They should make a big old trade agreement with us, and they should make one with the EU. The EU is apparently open to that. And, you know, the, the devil will be in the details about all that, because free trade doesn't mean that anymore. Free trade really means managed trade. And, uh, uh, you know, everybody, you know, we sign free trade agreements with people, and they get to keep their tariffs, and they get to make long lists of goods that are restricted, and we, we make them too, right? So... The more open, the better. And, uh, uh, you know, tr- Trump has called the, on the Europe, European un- Union for zero tariffs between us and Europe. Isn't that remarkable? Repeatedly. And every time he does, they attack him for being a protectionist. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. But, you know, if, if I were the president, I would have Secretary of State Pompeo, Secretary of Defense Esper, Secretary of the Treasury Mnuchin, I would have Robert O'Brien on a plane to negotiate that agreement and a revitalized Royal Navy and the British military generally. I, I think the special relationship could become that special again. Yeah, we, you know, because just think, you know, those, you know, Winston Churchill, they, they, people speak of him as a sentimentalist, right? Because he talked about history and the long bonds that are formed over time. Those bonds inside Great Britain and the United Kingdom, are apparent in this election. They assert themselves again, right? And just like that, the, the uh, special relationship, what is it built on, right? Why did the imperial nations send about 45% of the entire British war effort and took more casualties, 47% of the casualties, in both world wars, when Britain had no power to make them. Why did we respond to Britain in the way that we did? Well, interest was involved, of course, but sentiment was involved. Uh, you know, the old joke, we are divided by a common language. And uh, because I'm married to an English woman, you're using me to translate. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, is, it is sentiment, and it's real. And it helped that Churchill was half American. And I think the reason I'm celebrating so much is I'm an Anglophile, and I admit it, admit that. And I think there are lots of us. And I think there are lessons in this. Uh, we have six minutes, Dr. Warren. What ought the Democrats and the American media to learn from yesterday's wipeout of labor and basically Channel 4 and the BBC generally and the Guardian's troops? What lessons are there for Americans? British media is uh, somewhat less uniform 
than ours, although the televised media is not. Um, but one one lesson is, are people really listening to them anymore? You know, if you, like, uh, I think they have abandoned, you know, the, the higher up you go in the establishment of the media, the more you get this. Journalism comes, you know, that's a Latin and French word, journal, day, right? It's the story of the day. And so what you're supposed to be doing is saying, What's going on? What happened? And it's a factual enterprise. And so one thing to know is, what do people really think? And, uh, you know, the, the New York Times published an op-ed not long ago where the, the headline was, we are better than them. And that meant we sophisticated urbanites in New York and Washington are better than the people who live in flyover country. And that was a... That was a, a uh, and you know why? Look at their opinions. Their opinions are terrible. Ours are great. Well, that's not the job of journalism. You know, what do people think? How are they living? Try to get it right, you know. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a daily form of the writing of history, right? I mean, I studied with Martin Gilbert, and what was he a stickler for? We write from these documents because they exist, and they're the best evidence, and we stay close to them. Right. So I think that they've gotten separated from the opinions of ordinary people. And, and do you think there is a translatable political dynamic from what happened last night to November of next year? Of course, a week is a lifetime in politics, much less 10 months or 11 months. But I do think the indifference of elites to what people have been saying and if, there is a direct parallel between the stubbornness of the Remain and the condescension of the BBC to the blue bubble media of the Manhattan Beltway media elites and the Democratic Party hell-bent on impeaching Donald Trump and the embarrassment of Crossfire Hurricane. Well, certainly the vote in Blythe and such places in Britain, you know, the, the loss of those long-held labor seats to the Tories is parallel to the vote in Michigan and Pennsylvania and such places. And, and there are similarities for, in the reason for the vote. And nobody saw that coming, you know. Uh, uh, it, it, this is very parallel, right? I mean, Trump is doing better in, you know, in the polls, which you and I were talking in the break don't really mean much anymore, but that's uh, what we got right now. He's doing better in the polls with Hispanics and blacks. I talked to the woman the other day who is in charge of Hispanic outreach. I can't remember her name. I only talked to her for a minute. But I said, how's it going? She said, it's crazy, she said. We just can't keep up, right? So that's a change, right, and a healthy change, I hope and pray. And the same thing with African Americans. I hope that happens, too, because they just need to divide their vote up more, and they need a reason to do it. Well, they're getting jobs. That's a reason. But then... Suburban, right? The Democrats are doing better in previously Republican strongholds. What happened in England was that Boris held those traditional Tory votes in the suburbs for the most part, lost one or two, and then he just picked up an enormous amount, and that makes the Tories a more national party. And remember, just like it's true that Keeping the union together is the long struggle of Britain. Keeping the continent together is the long struggle of America. And the Constitution itself 
is written around the need to do that. You know, they just understood that if we're going to have, if we're going to turn this place into a continent of many countries, we're going to be just like Europe. Whereas we can be secure here and live peaceful lives if we don't. And so the structure of the Senate and the Electoral College especially is designed to spread power across the nation. And the blue places are trying to undo all that, right? And that will lead to fissures in the nation. And that won't be healthy. We, it will be disastrous, who, right? Who it will be disastrous. Be to stand up to China? Except we, right? And if we fracture ourselves, we won't be that. And then the world will go a different way. Well, that's well said. It's ominous, but it's well said. But then again, the message is sent. I do believe that people watch, even if they don't hear it reflected back, I do believe it's impossible to miss. I'm an optimist in that regard. I don't know if you share that optimism. I think it's impossible to miss this. Well, you this agree? morning, there are reasons for optimism. <laughs> so, there are. Yeah, of course and, there do. <laughs> we will post this Hillsdale Dialogue immediately over at hughhewitt.com. I encourage you to send it around to all of your friends. Because they'll hear a lot of conversation about it, and most of it will be ill-informed. Not all of it, but none of it will be as informed as Dr. Arnes' take. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership program offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today.